Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we can read your word together. I thank you that we can hear from your word, and I pray that you would help us to hear and understand what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever thought about what life would be like to live under a king? What would look, life look like under a king in the Middle Ages? Think about kings and castles, knights and bows and arrows, kings and their armies, commanding uh, the armies and having lavish banquets. Now, compare this with our current king, King Charles III. Most people don't like him very much, and I don't think I've ever heard of anyone worshipping him as king. But his face is going to be on our coins, and we'll get the king's birthday on our calendars. But most of the time, we're not going to have to think about him very much. King Charles is the head of state, but he doesn't get involved in governing the country. This is because we live in a constitutional monarchy, and the monarch's power is limited by the constitution. The power to write laws, go to war, collect taxes, determine justice, and religious practice are all separated into different groups, and their power is limited by the law. In the constitutional monarchy in which we live, nobody has absolute power. However, this isn't the case in an, this isn't the case in an absolute monarchy. In an absolute monarchy, the king rules with absolute power. There aren't any elections, there's no court of appeals, and the king does whatever he wants. What would life look like under a king like that? Well, you'd want to be in his good books for sure, and you'd also hope that you'd have a good king who cared for his people instead of a tyrant who only cared about himself. Well, in Psalm 110, we have an image of God's absolute monarch, God's king. As we go through, we'll be referring to a few passages, and I'll try to highlight how this psalm shows God's king is like David, God's king is like Melchizedek, and God's king is like God himself. God's chosen ruler is like David, like Melchizedek, and like God. So first, we'll look at how God's chosen king is like, like David. I was listening to a song this week by Elton John and Dua Lipa called Cold Heart. Do you know it? The, the words are up there. But uh, I was wondering uh, about how context, I was thinking about how context is important. How would these lyrics sound if they were in a textbook for how to do transplant surgery? <laughs> the words would, look, the words would uh, take on a bit of a different meaning. So context is important. I'll read the lyrics out. It's a human sign when things go wrong, when the scent of her lingers and temptation strong. Cold, cold heart, hardened by you, oh. Some things looking better, baby, just passing through. No, 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 no. I think if you hear the song, you'll know it's a catchy tune and a mashup of Elton John's hit songs from the past, so it probably doesn't really mean anything. But if you try but if you try to read the words and interpret them in a different context, you'll end up with a different meaning. If you read this thinking about heart transplants, maybe this song might sound like when you can smell that someone's going to die and has a cold heart, it's time for the organs to go to someone else. <laughs> so while this might seem a bit ridiculous, it shows how if we use the wrong context to try and interpret any text, we'll end up with the wrong meaning. If we try to interpret any passage of scripture without using the context of the whole Bible, end up with the wrong meaning. So when you look at the Psalms, it's important to know what the Psalms are written for and the background for some of the word imagery they use. The Psalms were primarily songs. They were written as art 
and they were generally used to evoke emotions and uh, use creative expression. We aren't meant to go through each line and take them literally. The majority of the Psalms were to be sung to glorify and praise God in a creative way. Psalm 110 is a prophecy. Whenever we read the Bible, we need to be mindful about the context. So if we turn to Psalm 110, the first thing to note is the subtitle, Of David, a Psalm. It's pretty easy to miss, and uh, we didn't read it out this morning. But this psalm is created, uh, credited specifically to David. It's important to keep this in mind, because it's not just anybody writing these words, but Israel's greatest king. If you look at verses 1 to 3, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. David here is receiving a vision. Verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David sees a king ruling from the right hand of God in heaven. David, the great king of Israel, receives a vision of his Lord sitting at the right hand of Yahweh. Traditionally, the second in command would be seated at the right hand of the ruler. And David here sees the Lord God Yahweh sitting on his throne in the heavens, anointing his chosen king to rule on the earth. This chosen king rules from Zion in might and splendor in the midst of his enemies. The people that challenge him are defeated in battle. His subjects willingly come to fight for him. The common interpretation for both Jewish and Christian writers here is that David is seeing the Messiah, the anointed one, who would come and deliver Israel. The image here is of a king just like David. The Messiah here rules from Zion, David's city. The Messiah is a mighty warrior, and David also was a mighty warrior. In the Bible, it says that women would dance and sing and say, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Mighty men would willingly fight for David. And in verse 3, the Messiah's troops will be willing on the day of battle to come to fight for him. Although David was a great king, his vision here shows a greater king ruling from David's city. We know that this king is greater than David because David himself calls him Lord in verse 1. And although David is called a man after God's own heart in the Bible, David was never seated at God's right hand. The Messiah that David sees in this vision is greater than David seated in the heavens. So God's Messiah is going to be a king just like David. However, God's Messiah will be even greater than David. Verses 1 to 3 show that the Messiah is going to be greater than David because he's seated at God's right hand in the heavens. When we move to verse 4, the Messiah will also be greater than David because he is a priest. If we move to verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What does this mean? Who is Melchizedek and why is he important? Uh, if we go back to Genesis, which we're supposed to read uh, this morning, but I didn't check the slides properly. Um, if we go to Genesis chapter 14, we will see Abraham, or David's forefather, was a mighty warrior and he had won a great victory over the allied forces of four kings and then rescued his nephew Lot. 
Abraham's name is later changed to Abraham. So the passage that we uh, have is uh, from verses 17 to 20. I'll read it now. <clears throat> After Abram returned from defeating Kedileamah and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. These three verses are the only story that we ever hear of Melchizedek in the whole Bible. It's only until Psalm 110 that his name is mentioned again. And so that seems a bit strange, doesn't it? Especially when you consider that Psalm 110 becomes the most quoted passage in the New Testament. So there's something special about Melchizedek and being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. But uh, first for context, we should start uh, with what it meant to be a priest in Israel. The purpose of a priest was to offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of Israel. The priests were the ones who would make intercession between the Jewish people and God. It was the priest's job to inspect the animal sacrifices and offer them to God. A Jewish man would lay his hands on the head of an animal and the priest would slaughter the animal in front of him as a reminder of the gravity and seriousness of sin. The punishment for sin was death. But instead of a human dying for his sin, it would be a perfect animal who would die instead. The animal would then be bled, skinned and cut into pieces, gutted and washed, and then burned on the altar. The temple was a perpetual barbecue. Night and day, smoke would rise from the burning of bulls, goats, lambs, doves, and grain as a reminder to the people of the seriousness of their sin. It would probably also smell pretty good. The Bible says that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But why was the sacrifice required? Why did a priest need to make atonement? What is atonement? Atonement is the restoring of a broken relationship by the repaying of a debt. Atonement is the restoring of a broken relationship by the repaying of a debt. To illustrate, I heard a man who owed his uncle some money uh, recently. The uncle lent him his car and he'd hoped that he'd be able to help a man who'd fallen on hard times, his nephew. The uncle was hoping that his nephew could use the car to get a job, to get to where he needed to get to. But instead of using the car to find a job, the nephew just sold the car for scrap metal, a few hundred dollars. The nephew felt so ashamed by this that he couldn't face his uncle and he had to unfriend him on Facebook. He knew instinctively that there was a debt that needed to be paid before that relationship could be restored. Now, while the sin here is relatively small, the nephew knew that he couldn't be in a right relationship while the debt with his uncle was still there. His shame from selling that car meant he couldn't face his uncle. He couldn't even be Facebook friends. In a similar way, we cannot have a relationship with God until our debt has been repaid. But you might ask, what debt do I have with God? I don't know anyone anything. Maybe the bank. But I always try and do what's right by the next guy. I don't take what I don't deserve. Well, the Bible tells us that everyone has sinned and falls short of God's standards. 
The debt that we have to God is too high for us to pay. The price of our sin is death. And none of us can pay that by ourselves. We need someone to mediate between us and God. That was the role of the priests. But you might say, we don't have priests anymore, so who's going to mediate between us and God? Who can bridge that gap between God in heaven and man on earth? Well, as it turns out, it's the Messiah in Psalm 110 who will be seated at God's right hand who can bridge that gap. If you look back at Psalm 110, it says, verse 4, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Whoever this priest is will be a priest forever and in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, If we go forward in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, we find that Jesus is the priest and king in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7.14 says, For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Because the priests had a special job in Israel, they had to have a special resume. The priests had to be from a special tribe, the tribe of Levi, and they had to be fit for the job. Because these priests had special qualifications, they were the only ones who were allowed to offer sacrifices to God. Whenever a king like Saul or Uzziah thought that they could offer the sacrifices because they were the king, they were punished severely by God. Jesus, however, is not a priest in the order of Levi or the order of Israel, but we are told that he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, Genesis 14.18, what we read before, tells us that Melchizedek was king of Salem or king of peace and priest of God most high. Melchizedek signifies a priest who is different from the other priests. Melchizedek is a foreshadowing figure of Jesus. Melchizedek is a priest of God and a king, just like Jesus is a priest and a king of God most high. And not just a priest for the term of his natural life either, but a priest forever. Jesus will be able to make intercession and atonement forever because Jesus will never die again. Even more than being a priest and king, Jesus was also the sacrifice that brings us to God. Hebrews 7, 27 says, Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. By dying on the cross for us, Jesus paid the price for sin. The debt that we owed was paid. Jesus was the atoning sacrifice. And when Jesus rose again, he ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God as our high priest. Praise be to God. Returning to Psalm 110, we've seen how the Messiah is like David, the Messiah is like Melchizedek, and now we'll move on to finish the psalm and see how the Messiah is like God. Uh, Psalm 110, 5 to 7 says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. When you first hear and see these words, I want to ask, how does it sound to you? This Messiah crushing kings on the day of his wrath and heaping up the dead. It sounds confronting to us in Australia. 
We live in a nation that has experienced peace and prosperity for a long time. And hearing of a king crushing the rulers of the whole earth and heaping up the dead doesn't sound like something we should want. But uh, I want you to imagine for a minute that you're someone from Ukraine. Next slide. Your nation has been invaded. Soldiers have bombed your home. You've had to send your children away and you don't know whether you'll see them again. Some of your friends and family have already died. Wouldn't you want a ruler who can lead you into battle and destroy the enemy? This is the picture of God's Messiah. He's not a king for peacetime, but for war. And although it might not feel like it, we are in the middle of a war. Ephesians 6.12 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Jesus will one day return to judge the living and the dead, Satan and his angels. He will assign justice to every nation and every ruler who ever lived. People will be held to account for their crimes and injustice. And what about verse 7? He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. After Jesus has finished the judgment, there is a picture of a peaceful brook and his head lifted high. The Bible tells us that after Jesus returns to judge the whole earth, he will take his people to a new heavens and a new earth and rule from his throne. Jesus is a king worthy of praise. Do you think King Charles is a king worthy of praise? If we ever went to war with Russia, do you think King Charles would be leading from the front, leading the war effort? Would King Charles be a king worthy of praise and worship? Well, constitutionally, he's not allowed to. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is the king that our hearts yearn for. He is a king worthy of praise, strong and mighty to save. Are we living like Jesus is our king? Do we come to him willing on the day of battle? Do we come to him as willing servants? Or are we living like Jesus is our enemy? Let me encourage you today to be like David and see Jesus for who he is. When we read the word of God and his spirit is inside of us, then our natural response will be to worship him. But you might say, I'm reading my Bible, but I'm just not feeling that close to God. Look to Jesus. For each of us, it might be something different. For some, you might need to meditate on God's word. Take a chapter, a parable, a single verse, and just think on it for 10 minutes and see how it transforms you. I've gotten into the habit of listening to the Bible while I walk the dogs, and it's amazing how listening to the Bible just changes, how it, uh, changes what I get out of the passage. You know, sin really angers God. That passage would have been really offensive when the prophet said it. Martin Luther used four questions for his meditation. It was based around instruction, thanksgiving, confession, and prayer. What is God teaching from the passage? What can I thank God for in the passage? What do I need to confess from the passage? And what can I pray from the passage? When I was preparing this sermon, I used different questions. What does this passage say about God? What can I give thanks for? And what do I need to confess? You could use different questions. But whatever the questions are, they can help you drill down into what the passage says and help you think and see Jesus. I've got to tell you, I needed to confess that I'm not always willing to go into battle when I was reading this passage. I'm sure I'm not the only one. 
The temptations of the world can seem much greater than God's kingdom. The temptations of the world can seem greater than the rewards in heaven. I had to ask God to help me to see that his kingdom is greater than anything on earth. But while God's word cuts to the heart, it also heals. We can take comfort in Jesus, our high priest. Jesus is on our side, advocating for us, interceding for us, praying for us, that we might be the servants we were meant to be. If you aren't a Christian, today's a great day to come and find out how. Come speak to me or Daniel afterwards. And for us who are Christians, let's pray and take heart in Jesus, our mighty King who will deliver us and our high priest who atones for our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we so often fail in our devotion to you. Our sins stain us and make us unworthy of you, and we so often run from you instead of running to you. Father, forgive us for our sins and make us clean through the blood of Jesus. Thank you for keeping your promise to send the Messiah, Jesus, who makes atonement through his sacrifice on the cross. Help us this week to draw near to you and to be your soldiers in the spiritual battle. Help us to see the battle and have wisdom and guidance from you on how to fight the good fight. Empower us by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.